Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Isaiah 40 is a turning point in the book. Up until now in Isaiah, judgment and exile, removal from the comfort and security of God's presence, echoing the sin and banishment of Adam and Eve from the garden has been declared upon Israel because of her unfaithfulness. And the images and pronouncements given to Isaiah by God paint a bleak picture for Israel's existence. And indeed, in exile, as strangers and sojourners with nothing to call home, no land, no temple, no functioning priesthood, no presence of God, it was indeed a bleak outlook for Israel. It would have been easy to succumb to hopelessness with no end in sight to the judgment laid on them. And with no transition from the most desolate of existence, Isaiah 1 to 39, comes a new word in chapter 40, a word of hope that God has not forgotten his people, that his purposes for the world have not been lost, and to raise the ante even more, what is offered as hope is not a new sort of regulations for humanity that on their own initiative they can now draw near to God, but rather God on his initiative is coming to draw near to humanity. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her, verse 2, that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And how is this so? Because the king is coming, says Isaiah. Prepare the way of the Lord, verse 3. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Lift up the valleys, lower the mountains, level the ground, smooth the plains. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. John Oswald in his stirring commentary on Isaiah says of this that it, quote, depicts the irresistible triumphal march of the universe's king. Nothing in the world can deter him, not deserts, mountains, or valleys. He is unstoppable reality. And should anyone doubt the veracity of this claim, let it be known, says Isaiah in verse 5, that of this, of this word, of this coming king, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Thus saith the Lord. But people say things all the time that don't come to be, Isaiah. How are, we to be, how are we to believe God? We've been let down by countless people who said one thing and did another. Yes, says Isaiah in verse 7, but all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and flowers fade. Words, people, and the certainties and uncertainties of them are as feeble and frail as the covering of the field. But, verse 8, the word of our God will stand forever. You're right, Israel. You can't place your ultimate confidence and trust in humanity, in flesh, because it is here today and gone tomorrow. But the word of our God is not like the word of people, which withers and fades. His word, this word of comfort, his declaration that he is returning, that word will stand forever, and that is where your certainty and confidence is to go.
So go up to the mountains, he says in verse 9. Lift your voice with strength. Let the message ring from the top of the mountains to the bottom of the valleys. Declare it with absolute certainty. Be a herald of good news. In the same way that when a king is installed, or when a king is victorious, and his heralds travel to the kingdoms declaring the good news, shout to everyone, lift up your voice, do not fear, says Isaiah, of this good news of the one and only king. Declare to the cities, behold your God. He comes with might, verse 10. His arm rules for him, his reward is with him, his recompense before him. The imagery here is again a victorious king who's returning with the spoils of victory, with his reward, his rule, and his earnings. And though the question begged is, victorious over what? And it will take the course of history to work that out, and to that we'll return. But regardless, the return of the king will be a return in victory with all of eternity, the earth and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein as his rightful kingdom. This is Oswald again, quote, God does not save his people with programs sent from afar. Neither does he save them with theological conceptions coolly administered from on high. He comes. And just as when he comes to his people, it will be in power, might, glory, and victory with the same arm that he rules with in verse 10 and verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Here is first introduced a seeming paradox that we'll return to as well, that God is the sovereign and God is the shepherd. This almost sounds too good to be true, Isaiah. I want to believe it. But I just don't know how God can possibly overcome all that has happened to me. Can he really do this? Can he, says Isaiah. Verse 12, can he? Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who has marked off the heavens with a span? Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure? Who has weighed the mountains in scales, the hills in a balance? God has not presided over creation in some sort of general abstract way, not with the indifference of the deist's clockmaker, but God has presided over creation in exactitude, measuring, marking, enclosing, weighing. Isaiah continues in verse 14. And by the way, who did God run all of this by? Whom did he consult? Who helped him better understand his creation? Who taught him what is right and wrong? Who helped him to be a little more learned and sophisticated and modern? Who showed him what he really needed to know in his rule? No creation committee was formed. There was not a vote taken on its acceptability. God has not put anyone in the position of advisor, trustee, or member of the board. He doesn't answer to shareholders. His job performance is not up for review. And J. Alec Maltier, Old Testament scholar, says of this, that the Lord works with unaided wisdom. Why? For behold, Isaiah says, verse 15, all of the collective power 
might, and wisdom of the nations, of princes and rulers, read of presidents and congresses, of all who inhabit God's creation. Isaiah is using as extreme of language of contrast as possible that the summation of all that creation could ever offer from the beginning of eternity to the end is but a drop in a bucket, like dust on a scale, as less than nothing and emptiness, verse 17, like the flower you brush off your countertop. Isaiah doesn't let up. In verse 22, all the inhabitants of the world, the Billions of people who have ever existed are like grasshoppers. And like we stretch out the sheets on our bed to make it, so too God stretches out the heavens like a tent that he may come dwell in. So what then are princes over the speck of dirt they think they own? What then are rulers here today and gone tomorrow, blips unnoticeably on the radar of eternity? What then are presidents and parliaments and congresses who fool themselves in their self-importance? Their decisions and power are to God as nothing, like the young child who's dressed up their stuffed animals at a tea party and all together are deciding on decisions for the kingdom. It's important to remember that Isaiah is not speaking of the worth of the nations and all who inhabit God's creation. Remember, this is primarily a passage of salvation. It's not that all of this is worthless, only that in comparison to the power and work of God, there is none. And so this comparison begs the rhetorical question posed in verse 18 and verse 25, one by Isaiah one by God. To whom then will you liken God? And then from God's perspective, to whom then will you compare me? Look up, God says in verse 26, look up and see that even the vastness and incomprehensibility of the stars were created and called by name by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power. And all of this passage, building to this creational crescendo, pausing and asking the question Isaiah has been working so far to ask in verse 27. So why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, that my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. Why do you say, why has God forgotten about me? We really get a look into the mind of God's people in this time. John Goldengay makes note that the question being asked by Israel is a question about God, not a question to God. It's not, God, why have you forgotten about me? That would be a question to God. The question being asked is, why has God forgotten about me? This is addressed to no one. You see the distance in the question. The remo- it's removed from any sort of personal connection with God. Anyone know what that's like? With uncertain futures, crippling anxiety... Prayers that seem to reach no heights that fall back to us in silence and frustration, if we're even praying at all. 
And in that state, sooner or later, we cease to work and wonder with God and simply, almost fatalistically, just wonder about God. Why has God forgotten about me? We may know this all too well, and if so, then Isaiah has a word for you. Don't you know? Verse 28. Have you not heard? And of course the answer is yes. This isn't some brilliant new insight. No, no, I've never considered all this, Isaiah. No one's ever told us till you told us this this first time. Wow. They're not being enlightened on anything. It's a reminder. Resonating with what they know deep down in their soul, even if all the while they're still frustrated with God. You know this, Isaiah is saying. You've heard it. The Lord is the everlasting God. At no point in our life does He cease being God, even in our worst. The creator of the ends of the earth, there's nothing too big for Him. He does not faint or grow weary of you, of circumstances. He's not tired of helping. He's not tired of being God. His understanding is unsearchable. We're not always going to understand His wisdom and will, but here's what we can have absolute certainty and clarity on. He gives power to the faint. And to Him and to her who has no might, He increases strength. In the fog of life, when you are weary, when you've done everything you know to do to no avail, God is not sitting somewhere waiting for you to get it all together and then we'll talk. Dallas Willard was known for saying something to the effect that if you want to know what God's address is, it's at the end of your rope. It's not in our strength that God says, great job, well earned, here's your reward. It's in our weakness that He condescends to us and gives of himself. Once again, earlier pointed to when describing the coming king as a shepherd, this seemingly mutually exclusive paradox is given. Isaiah has spent most of this chapter drawing the reader's attention to the multitude, the incalculable amount of ways in which God transcends any sort of understanding and boundaries of creation, of nations and rulers, of any idol that someone may foolishly think stands in his place, that God towers over all in an incomprehensible way, even over the heavens and stars and billions of light years of space. And Isaiah could have left us there and said that God, He is transcendent, and all we have to do is acknowledge that and obey. But what is even more profound is that this, the transcendence of God, the sum of all His transcendence, God in all of His infinite being, in all of His unrivaled sovereignty, God as unstoppable reality, in all of His glory, and all of His towering might and power, God who holds eternity in His hand, comes and gives to be eminent to His people in their frustration, confusion, 
weakness and weariness. Transcendent eminence. And even more profound, and this is the heartbeat of the New Testament, is that this transcendent eminence is not some impersonal force. It is not some document given from on high. It is not a set of principles and ethics. This transcendent eminence has a name, a name that is above every name, a name at which every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. Jesus is that name. Jesus is the coming King. Jesus is the glory of the Lord revealed. Jesus is the word of the Lord which stands forever. Jesus is the good news to shout from the mountains. Jesus is who marches victorious over the principalities of sin and death. Jesus, in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, is also the one who is the good shepherd, who gives power to the faint, who increases might, who beckons the world, come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And doesn't that sound a lot like comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Every gospel writer picks up on this. Each gospel connects verses 3 to 5 with the ministry of John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus to signify that Isaiah 40's fulfillment is primarily manifested in the life and ministry of Jesus. So verse 31, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. And the gospel writers are proclaiming to all readers that such a renewal of strength, of salvation, of receiving the power and might of God when we are utterly empty is found in no other place and no other person than in Jesus in His indwelling Spirit. That is the big picture fulfillment. But then throughout our lives, this passage plays itself out in different seasons of life. And perhaps it's the season that you're in of waiting of uncertainty, of anxiety. Perhaps it feels as if God has forgotten about you. This passage assumes, along with numerous psalms, numerous passages in the New Testament, countless testimonies of Christian saints in the past, that the life of faith can present this sort of situation where we go, God, have you forgotten about me? And what you can bank your life on is that, one, God is big enough for you to tell him that. And maybe that's where you need to start. God, I feel forgotten about. Two, trust that God is not in the business of being mysterious for mysterious' sake. He's not wanting you to be some spiritual detective, but is present in the waiting to strengthen, lift up, and sustain, and three, when that feels too hard to believe, remember, remember who God is, that He transcends any imaginary boundary we could possibly think of. As Paul tells the Ephesians, He that is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And that if He is able to create the universe 
to name the stars, to hold the waters in the hollow of his hand, then he is able and present to give to you in your time of need. As Derek Kidner, Old Testament scholar, says of Isaiah's description of God, the wrong inference is that he is too great to care. The right one is that he is too great to fail. Big picture fulfillment in Jesus, the new. Smaller picture fulfillment in different seasons of our life, the now. But the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 40 points to when God will flood all of creation with his glory, the perfect. When God will be all in all, as Paul tells the Corinthians. Our instrumental reflection was, my shepherd will supply my need. And that text was written by Isaac Watts. And it ends, it says, no more a stranger nor a guest, but like a child at home. That is how we ultimately wait upon the Lord. And Isaiah, in the confidence of God's faithfulness, declares that they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. Mildred Stillwell was a member of Antioch Baptist Church in Chambers County, Alabama. It's a church my grandfather pastored for a long time. And close to the end of her life, she was in the hospital. Several days of in and out of consciousness. But the whole time she was in the hospital, her feet were moving, like she was walking. And occasionally when she would be in aware, she would say something to the effect like, gosh, my legs hurt. And there was a young couple in the church who they had established a very strong relationship. They weren't related, but they called her Aunt Mildred. And they were watching her in the hospital, and she would say, feet moving. She would say, oh, my legs hurt. And they would say something to the effect, Aunt Mildred, you won't have to worry about your legs because you'll have new legs in heaven. And she would say, that's all well and great, but I need new legs now. (laughs) But those feet would keep moving. And at some point when she was out of consciousness, she began greeting people that she had not seen and that were not living. Feet moving. Hey, Betty. Hey, George. And at one point in those greetings, legs still moving, there was a pause. And she said, What'd you say your name was? Jesus? Legs stopped moving. She passed away. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint.